This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. It's a beautiful morning. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to Deep South Dining right here on MPB Sync Radio. Malcolm White with Carol Puckett. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Mal. How are you this morning? I'm lovely. It's a beautiful November day, crisp and cool, and the sun is shining. But did you forget how totally weird it is falling back and going on daylight savings time? It's a strange thing. <clears throat> falling back for me might as well be knocking me out. I get so confused uh, with, the, with the early darkness uh, and the, all of the time shifting. But I, I figure it out. It takes me two or three days, and I get all the clocks reset and get my own internal clock working, and uh, finally I come out of it. Well, well, tell me about your weekend. I haven't heard from you in a few days. Were you yeah. hiding out, hanging out? No, no, no. Hammering away, uh, you know, working down at Hallamow's, trying to get my massive uh, clutter and collection ready for a clean out. Uh, I've taken on a huge project of uh, cleaning out 10,000 square feet uh, of the upstairs of that building. I've been doing a lot of uh, babysitting and uh, a little bit of cooking, though, thankfully for me, Kara does uh, the better job of the cooking. In fact, uh, last night she cooked this wonderful uh, sort of corn uh, meal encrusted halibut that she had gotten from uh, Costco. And she made a batch of homemade biscuits uh, last week, and we froze some of them and got them out this week. So I had uh, homemade biscuits uh, to go with the halibut. Also, uh, yesterday morning for breakfast, I got up and made myself uh, what I tr- ordinarily would think of as a French omelet. And it's just a style of cooking that I learned when I was working down in New Orleans. But the ingredients I put in it were more like Spanish ingredients, um, so I had a French-Spanish omelet for breakfast and, and some bacon. How about you? Well, first of all, I want to ask you a question about that omelet. Like in the French style, was it more of a roll? Yes. Where you, where you fold each side, you, you roll it, roll it, roll it, flip it on the plate, and when you look at the top of the plate, there's no seam. It's a ripples. And you yeah. create those ripples once you heat up your pan and put your butter and or olive oil in it, and it sort of bubbles up and then settles down. You pour your egg mixture in on top of that, and as it begins to cook, you take a fork and pull the edges toward the middle. And as you pull, the omelet, the cooked omelet moves to the center, and the uncooked eggs move to the exterior and fill in the space. And then after you've pulled it all to the doneness level that you're interested in, you roll it over with whatever ingredients uh, you want to put in the center. Uh, this Yesterday morning, I put uh, jalapeno uh, uh, pimento cheese with salsa uh, in the middle of mine. That and sounds delicious. It, it, it's interesting because I made one, too, uh, probably on, on Thursday, and I hadn't done the French style in a long time. So, I, of course, went on YouTube and just saw there were so many videos but it was fun to watch a like little three or four minute video with Jacques Pepin with his French accent 
telling us how to cook the omelet. And, you know, you always get something from those those things. With him, I got a lot, but I had forgotten that uh, he reminded everybody to crack your eggs on a flat surface. And so I did that. I didn't get as much um, egg white in the bowl as I want to do. But I thought that was a good tip. Yeah. Kind of forgotten about that. Well, I, I crack, my, crack my eggs on the side and put them in a bowl and, and whip them up with, with water. And I learned to, to add the water. I also add uh, hot sauce, in, in my case, crystal. Of course. But I learned this technique while living in New Orleans and taking a cooking class on how to make a French omelet back in 1976 and 77 when I lived down there. But anyway, this is the sort of omelet that I make, and it's fun to add all sorts of uh, things to it. What about you? What are you cooking? Well, I think I was just thinking French like you were. Um, I made uh, Coke au vin, which is a very traditional French dish. Y'all start craving it this time of year. And really, coca then means rooster in wine. So it's a you know, chicken in a deep red wine sauce. And it's absolutely delicious. It's, it's like a French peasant food or it's a food that you would find in a bistro in, in France. And Julia Child really made it popular in the United States, which she kind of introduced it. But um, you start with sauteing, well, cooking down like eight slices of bacon. And I used Bitten's bacon, so it had a really smoky flavor. And then you saute your carrots and onions. And then my favorite thing, of course, is getting to light it on fire. You douse all of that with cognac, and then it, you know, it flames up, and the cognac burns into the vegetables. And after that, it's all about the chicken and just adding wine and chicken stock and mushrooms and pearl onions and then sopping it up with some good French bread. Mm. But it, it's delicious. I'm going to tell all of our listeners, if you want some rooster and wine sauce, go to the Internet and look up Anna Garten, the Barefoot Contessa's recipe, or Julia Childs, and you will not be sorry. Yeah, I enjoyed your pyrotechnics that you posted on uh, cooking and coping. Uh, looked like well, you, you know, I do love a little razzle-dazzle <laughs> in the kitchen. And I have been known to, to burn down a few things. And I saw your comment, and it said, uh-oh, I think I know how this ends. And I well, said, I meant that in a good way. I meant uh, the end uh, product was probably very tasty. Oh, I don't think so. But um, anyway, uh, um, we're 24 days from Thanksgiving. I've noticed uh, that that is true. And, you know, speaking of Thanksgiving, uh, one other treat that I had this week was uh, a great friend of mine, Tom O'Massey, dropped off a Kringles pastry at my front door uh, a few days ago. And, man, do we love those. You introduced me to those Racine, Wisconsin pastries started in 1949, now four generations later the Kringle pastry. Uh, and I was, I went to their website while I was enjoying the pastry and noticed that they have something new this year. It is a Thanksgiving stuffed Kringle pastry with cranberries and pecans. 
That sounds delicious. Describe over the radio, if you will, what a Kringle pastry looks like. Well, it's it's a round, uh, sort of like an O. Uh, it's a it's a circular pastry uh, with. I know they do pecan stuffing. They do raspberry stuffing. They do a variety of uh, stuffings, and then they put a beautiful uh, sort of white uh, glaze glaze over the top. Yeah, and it's flat. It's flat. Don't, and it's, don't think uh, round like a tire. It's flat. A flat tire. Yeah, a flat tire, and maybe it would be good to. That would be a good thing to give Java for Christmas. Man, let me tell you something. You gave me one of those many years ago, and it literally knocked my eyes out of socket. That 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 is such a wonderful uh, now American um, tradition. I think it started where that family is. Um, I think from somewhere uh, in Finland or I, I don't know. Somewhere over there. Over there, and they came here four generations ago, and they make these outrageous pastries. And if you haven't had one. You better better think about it. And I want to, again, shout out to Tom O'Massey for dropping that off on the front porch. Thank goodness the cat didn't get it before I did. Yeah. Hey, Malcolm, how did it feel to be a cover guy? Because we were on the cover of Fine Tuning this week, the MPB November magazine. Yeah, well, it was really great. Uh, I had not seen it. Uh, Kara uh, brought it to my attention. And and she said, this is such a good photograph, and we know why it was a good photograph, and I'll let you talk about our talented photographers who took it. But she was so happy with my selection of the red sweater, uh, never mind the food uh, and being on the cover. She was really complimenting your, clo your clothing uh, and also uh, my red sweater selection. I can't believe anyone would doubt that we know what it takes to uh, pull a cover photo off. We know about about color, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we got up early on a Friday morning and made oyster dressing and turkey. And Tom and Casey Bett came over to my kitchen and shot the photograph. And we were honored to represent MPB this month. And I really didn't mean to talk so much about ourselves, but the point of my story is it was about a Thanksgiving story. That's the theme of the cover. And we want to encourage everybody out there to send us their Thanksgiving stories. And I, I know that uh, you, they can call. We have the website, which is food at mpbonline.org. But to right. kick it off, I think Java has a Thanksgiving story. Maybe that would spur a little, you know, conversation. Yeah, I thought about that um, this weekend because the cover did, the, the Fine Tuning magazine came out. You guys were looking beautiful on the cover. And in the inside, Kara, you shared your story about um, coming from a, uh, a a dark meat family. And then you went to a Thanksgiving where it was a, like an exclusively white meat family. And it was just a big thing. That was a cute story. And my story is about my aunt uh, who lives in Oxford and Every Christmas and Thanksgiving, she always makes, and I think I want to say she makes them for me, uh, these breakfast 
fried pies and she uses um she uses dried apples and dried peaches and then she cooks them down and she takes uh like the Pillsbury dough um flaky biscuits she 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 makes them really really thin and then just folds them over and fills it with the with the ooey gooey goodness and uh she and she brings she brings them down to Jackson uh when she comes um when she can't come this year because because of covid but last year i don't know what was going on but she couldn't find dried apples and she couldn't find dried peaches but she could find dried apricots and she called me and she was just java i'm sorry i won't be able to make your fried pies because i don't know anything about these apricots i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try uh but what was so funny i had just got some apricot preserves um not too long before that and i was telling her just try them uh you know we can it's gonna taste it's gonna taste good i know i want my apples i know i want my peaches but just try the apricots and then lo and behold she tried it also she had to go to batesville uh which is you know up the road from oxford to go (laughs) get some dried apples because she called the walmart because the kroger and the walmart in oxford just didn't have anything so it turned into a whole to do but when she came down she had some fried pies and I was a happy uh, young man. <laughs> well, Carol, maybe this year you and I can get in on this ooey gooey goodness that Java's talking about. And he'll bring us a few fried pies. Yeah, and if your aunt can't make it, I suggest you meet halfway on the highway. <laughs> maintain maintain social distance. Keep your mask on and get those pies. Because outside of the, you know, getting together with the family, like that is my, she brings them and that's just like everybody knows a certain amount of those are mine. So don't even, so don't, so don't even play. (laughs) Well, that that really, you know, brings us to the topic that Thanksgiving is going to be very different uh, for a lot of people this year. A lot of thinking and planning, even more than usual are going into this Thanksgiving. Right. And later on in the show, we're going to talk about Carol's Thanksgiving uh, list of how to start getting ready, being prepared. Uh, don't let it sneak up on you. Uh, she has great tips about equipment. She has great tips about timing and a uh, timeline. But again, we, we would love for you to send us your Thanksgiving stories, just like Java just shared his Thanksgiving story. You can email those to us at food at RG. And if we read your story on the air, we will send you one of our fabulous T-shirts. Uh, so we'd like to, for you to interact. Send us your Thanksgiving story. Call us if you want to participate in today's uh, episode. But at this moment, we're going to take our first break of the day. When we return, we will look at some of the past president's favorite meals. Election day is tomorrow. Don't forget to vote. We are America. And this is how we do democracy. Uh, But we here at Deep South Dining are all about bringing people together uh, around good food and fellowship. So stay tuned and learn what former president liked their pork rinds with hot sauce and which one enjoyed a big plate of pig's feet. We'll be right back. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today 
at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome back to Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio. Malcolm White with Carol Puckett. I want to remind you that this is the show about the culture of Southern flavor. Well, Carol, what do you think? Malcolm, I'm still thinking Thanksgiving, and I'm thinking the election tomorrow, and I'm thinking what am I going to cook tomorrow night for election eve? Yeah, I think that there's probably a lot of people who plan special meals uh, to watch elections, just like they do to watch football or the World Series or their favorite episode of uh, whatever program they enjoy. So I would be interested if uh, anybody wants to share what their election night uh, eating and drinking specialties will be. But right now we have a caller on the phone, Kathleen from Osaka. Hello, Kathleen. You two guys just had me so homesick about New Orleans and the French omelets and things. I was just sitting here between crying and laughing. But I got a little <laughs> tip about a, a nice omelet, and I like to cook it during the summer when we have our chanterelles around. Oh. When, yeah, you, yeah. when you make an omelet, I always keep a couple packs of frozen spinach in the fridge. And you can break off a little bit and seal it back up, you know. So I would take a little bit of the spinach, saute it in some butter. And if you add your usual celery, onions, a little fine, fine mince. But I would take uh, chanterelles, process right. You do it yourself, you know. Chop them up. I lightly stir fry them before I put them in to make sure everything's safe. And then add a simple slice of Swiss cheese and do your fold. And a little tip on the fork on the side of the rim, there is a tool that's used for cakes. And it's kind of like a knife, but it's flat, like a a spatula, straight out. I use that because it doesn't tear the edges of it. It makes a neat little thing. But uh, I'm going to give you a little tip uh, for your Thanksgiving. Don't wait till Thanksgiving Day to make your gravy. Go your grocery, buy chicken, uh, turkey thighs, turkey wings, whatever, brown them, make a little roux with what you have left over, then put the legs or parts back in, cover it with water, and let it cook down. You can make an excellent gravy for that and just put it in the ice cube tray and freeze it and take it out the day you're going to use it. Mm. Now, that is a great tip. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a wonderful way uh, to always have turkey stock or chicken or poultry stock on hand. Beautiful idea. Well, y'all enjoy your day, but boy, Malcolm, you had me going on that New Orleans-style omelet. Eggs are so ubiquitous around the world. You know, there's so many ways, Oriental, German, Italian frittatas. It's basically the same thing. So just have fun with it. But I thought you might like that because if you live alone, sometimes you don't have all that time to go shopping for this, shop for that special stuff. But usually you can keep a pack of frozen spinach, eggs, and Swiss cheese. 
That is terrific. Thank you always, Kathleen, for tuning in to Deep South Dining and for calling and sharing your wisdom. Uh, and you are right. It is a global South that we live in now, even in the deep part of the South. All right. So uh, in the spirit of, of tomorrow's presidential and senatorial and flag and all sorts of other uh, election information, uh, remember here uh, at home, we are voting for a president and a vice president, a United States senator, a new flag, and for uh, medical marijuana. So it's a complicated ballot. Don't get in a hurry. Take your time. Read through it. Be prepared. A uh, lot of issues uh, on the on the ballot this year, but most of all, vote. Whether you agree uh, with uh, your neighbors or your family's uh, opinions, go vote your heart and your conscious and and uh, your American uh, democratic right. Uh, now, in the spirit of the election season, we are going to revisit a 2018 interview from Adrian Miller. He joined the show uh, to talk about a new book that he had called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. Let's take a listen to that. Now, what a lot of people don't know is before Truman, um, Congress did not allot any money to the president in order to cover their entertaining and food budgets. So a lot of presidents had to pay for this out of their own pockets. So when slaveholding presidents became uh, came into office, they would often bring their enslaved cooks with them for a couple reasons. One is they, they were going to get reliable food, and the second is uh, they could save a lot of money. So the first notable example is Hercules, the enslaved cook at Mount Vernon, who cooked for President Washington in um, Philadelphia, because D.C. was being constructed at the time. And um, Pennsylvania had this law that if you were in Pennsylvania soil for six months as an enslaved person, you'd be free. So what Washington did to get around that is right around the six-month deadline, he'd pack up all the enslaved people and bring them back, and he does this throughout his presidency. If you go back in newspapers of the day, they certainly did talk about these cooks, but um, you know it just kind of faded over time. So I was happy to, to compile the stories and really present this unique view on the presidency. Um, and you know, a lot of this, a lot of the African Americans were in the kitchen before cooking was glamorous as it is today. Uh, because what you know, back in the day, a lot of people didn't want to be in the kitchen. Actually, uh, you know, they wanted to do other stuff, but. African-Americans had employment opportunities severely, uh, you know, circumscribed by um, whites. And so there were only few occupations they could do without, you know, being uh, worried about being too successful. One of my favorite personalities from the book was a woman named Zephyr Wright, who was the longtime uh, personal cook for Lyndon Johnson. And uh, when Lyndon Johnson was pressing for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, he actually used her experiences in the Jim Crow South to persuade members of Congress to support the bill. And after he signed the bill, he gave her one of the pens and said, you deserve this as much as anyone. The interesting thing is that these people were a celebrated culinary artists. They were family confidants. And in many cases, they were civil rights advocates. And they gave our presidents a window on black life that they may not have had otherwise. And that was Adrian Miller from a 2018 interview here on Deep South Dining, which 
predates Carol and I. It was our show was then hosted by Kevin Farrell and Deborah Hunter, and we do appreciate uh, that great presentation by our masterful, ooey gooey producer, Java Chapman. Uh, Malcolm, I have some news on Adrian. You know, we had Adrian on the show, I guess it was this summer, around Juneteenth, talking about uh, Soul Food and his Soul Food book, and he mentioned at the time that he was working on a cookbook called Black Smoke, African Americans in the United States of Barbecue. And the book has, has been sold to the North Carolina Press, and it is going through all the steps of publication right now, and it's going to be out in February. So I would love to have him back on the show. You know, we both got to know him at Southern Foodways uh, conferences, and, you know, he may be in Colorado, but he is a Southerner at heart. And he worked in the White House. Right, right. He knows of, of what he speaks. But we had another great clip, which we didn't have time for, um, where Adrian talks about uh, a cook named Daisy Bonner from the FDR period. And he got F she got FDR hooked on pig's feet. She worked at the Little White House, which was Roosevelt's Warm Springs, Georgia retreat, where he would receive treatment for his polio. He really loved how she broiled the pig's feet, split them open, and then buttered them. And who wouldn't would be my question. I know, especially you know, for somebody from New York like FDR to be introduced to pig's feet. But there are some other good ones, too, from Adrian's book. And uh, one of my favorites is that Thomas Jefferson loved macaroni and cheese. And he learned about it on a trip, I guess a diplomatic trip to France. And he is credited with popularity of macaroni and cheese in the United States. And he even served it for a state dinner in 1802. It was very exotic back in those days. Well, Thomas Jefferson has something in common with Java Chapman. You know, Java yes, loves does. the mac and cheese. <laughs> um, and and who, who do you think was the pork rind president? Pork rinds. Let's see. Would that be one of the Bush presidents? It was George H.W. He loved pork rinds and Tabasco sauce. Well, if he had ever tried crystal, I think he would have changed his mind. But that's just my opinion. You know, uh, Lincoln, I understand, was a big fan of the gingerbread cookies, you know, and uh, who wouldn't be there again? And then Andrew Johnson, as I understand it, loved the Southern Deep South classic of Hoppin' John. Which is black-eyed peas, salt pork, and cooked rice. And, and, you know, who wouldn't like this? But one of the things that's kind of in common here is all of these foods they love, not maybe not gingerbread, are southern foods. And, yeah. you know, George H.W. was from New England, and here he comes to love pork rinds. FDR's from New York. He comes to love uh, pig's feet. So what does that say about our Deep South cooking? It says it's good. It's good, and it's uh, very popular. President Obama uh, was a big fan of nachos, which I guess you could say nachos is sort of Texas, Tex-Mex, Mexican, uh, south of the border treat. 
And our well, current president, he, I understand, our current president likes fast food. He does. He does. And I, I wanted to also say that uh, President Obama was a big rib man. Uh, I, I remember being in Asheville, North Carolina, and he was there for something. And uh, he was at a rib place called Twelve Bones. And they, they, he had heard about it from somebody uh, on his advanced team, and he had to go try their ribs. I, I, I think I've been to Twelve Bones. I know about it. It seems like I was there when I went on that um, barbecue trek uh, with Southern Foodways a bunch of years ago. And we, man, we we combed across from Austin all across East Texas, all out uh, into that uh, hill country. And we ate so much barbecue, you know, I was starting to oink like a pig, but my goodness, it was good. Those giant Texas barbecue roadhouses are quite a phenomenon, like the Salt Lick and many others that that are all out in the uh, East Texas foothills. Now, you want to talk about uh, the equipment? Or you want to take a break here, Java, and come back and do equipment and uh, Thanksgiving tips? Uh, let's go ahead and take our break because um, I know oftentimes when we do bring up the um, uh, the political side of things, you talk about the Senate bean soup uh, from the Congressional Cookbook, and we can get into that after this after this break. Great. All right. Well, we'll take a break here, and when we come back, we will talk more about uh, the recent debates that have actually. <clears throat> been posted on our cooking and coping facebook group uh what condiments are appropriate for your sausages for example so stay tuned we'll be back no matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone everyday tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the mpb public media app Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Welcome back to Deep South Dining right here on MTV Think Radio. Al Spice and Carol Puckett. I want to welcome you back to our show and thank you for tuning in and listening. You know, I recently saw uh, a documentary on Netflix uh, about the Laurel Canyon days uh, with the rock movement out there, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and the Mamas and Papas. And there's a great story about the, the Mamas and Papas were living in New York. And uh, this song uh, about, you know, California dreaming. Yeah, about moving away from New York and imagining being able to move out to California uh, was penned while while they still lived in New York. And then it became a reality. They moved out uh, to to uh, the L.A. area and into Laurel Canyon, which was the hotspot for the a great musical revolution, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, as I said. Frank Zappa was there. 
uh, all sorts of people, including the monkeys, were all holed up in Laurel Canyon and making this great music. But anyway, thanks for that, Java. That was a, a nice intro piece. Now, before we went on break, Java had mentioned the Senate bean soup, uh, which is famous in D.C. Uh, at the Capitol and at the House uh, office building and the Senate office building. And uh, there's a great congressional cookbook that's put out each year and each president, maybe it's not every year, but maybe every four years, each president sort of features. It's kind of like a community cookbook, Carol, where members of, it Cong is indeed. members of Congress, members of the Senate and their uh, families submit <clears throat> recipes to be put in the congressional cookbook. And one of the most famous recipes there uh, is the Senate white bean uh, soup that's served every day. It is a law in the United States of America that the white bean soup must be served every day, not every other day, not three days a week, not on occasions, but every day. And when my brother Hal and I worked in Washington, he is a page and me as a elevator operator. And uh, ah. we started eating this Senate white bean soup and it became my brother's first obsession with soup making. And he came home and made uh, this ham-based white bean soup, and uh, and he made it from that from that day forward. And they still serve it in D.C. every day. So, and that would be the perfect bipartisan election night dinner. Yeah, big pot of soup, some cornbread, uh, and. Uh, Everybody be thoughtful and kind to their neighbors, whether they're yeah. sitting next to you on the couch, next door, or in the next county. Uh, I just looked online, and there are numerous recipes for the the Senate bean soup. And you know, I want to thank you. You turned me onto that congressional cookbook a while back, and uh, yeah, I found a copy in my significant other's library, John Palmer, and comparing it to yours. They were very different. I didn't realize that, you know, it's updated regularly. And in fact, the one that I had was edited by our uh, Mississippian, uh, Trisha Lott, wife of the then Senator Trent Lott. And boy, I know that was quite a job. Man, can you imagine? You know, uh, on Cooking and Coping, our Facebook page uh, here recently, we've had a lot of people weigh in uh, about the way they like to prepare certain things like biscuits and sausage uh, and other things. So it's kind of gotten stirred up, Carol. And uh, what were you telling, how many, telling me how many people weighed in on the biscuit and mustard controversy? Well, I think there were 182 and people had, you know, what, what got to me was just how rabid people were, uh, you know, pro and con mustard, like it was like gross or you couldn't live without it. But there were a lot of very deep feelings, very, very deep. Some people believe that only jelly or jam can go in a biscuit, some only butter. But the people who love mustard on their sausage and biscuits really, really love it. And they are very specific about what kind of mustard they like. Um, and you remember Cameron Abel from Greenwood, I think yeah, you, you yeah. know him. Yeah, what right. a great guy, but he's the one that posted it. And he said, you know, he put it up there and said, fight me. <laughs> he had a, a picture 
of a sausage and biscuit from a drive-thru with mustard all over it and uh, fight people did. So I, w- I was hoping to learn how you fall on the biscuit and mustard question. And I wanted to hear from some of our other folks out there. Well, I can tell you that for me, um, I'll eat a biscuit and sausage most anyway. And, and so I love the jelly jam version and I love mustard on a sausage period, whether it's on a link of sausage uh, in a bun or on the side of a, a big plate of red beans and rice with some andouille sausage. I'll put a little mustard on there to, to dip my sausage in. So I don't know why anybody would be offended about adding mustard uh, to the traditional breakfast sandwich of, of a biscuit uh, and sausage sandwich. I, I think it sounds terrific and you know, I don't know why it can't be all of the above. That's I, do, I don't either, but much, much offense was taken, and I'm betting we're going to hear from some of those offended. If not this week, we'll hear from them next week. Carol and Malcolm, when I put it on the script, that's why, well, like you said, Malcolm, all of the above, I would always put debates or argument in quotes because it really is, you know, people's uh personal preference but one one thing that struck me was maybe being the youngest out of out of this trio uh <laughs> a lot of comments were talking about i like mustard on my um sauces and biscuit breakfast sandwich because that's the way my dad used to eat it and i was like wow i guess maybe it's kind of an old school thing with the mustard on your breakfast sausage but then another comment was about it just depends on the time of day because for me personally mustard i i guess uh it's just a little too early in the morning for that kind of tangy spice a little bit and then but that that sweet you know jelly type that's that's good good for the morning hours you know yeah well but what about hot sauce on your eggs i mean does that does that get you going, or are you against that also? Well, I'm not a hot sauce person anyway. I'm I'm a strange Mississippian. I don't I don't do the hot sauce. <laughs> so, so you like a nice, sweet, soothing breakfast, and then you'll get a little bit adventurous toward lunch and dinner. Is that what you're saying? There we go. There we go. Depends on the time of day. So the sausage and biscuit with with jelly or jam. Uh, is a you consider it a morning breakfast meal and then if you were to go into a lunchtime sandwich with a sausage and biscuit then you would consider adding the mustard yeah that's it there we go well i just really appreciate this type of controversy there's been way too much controversy going on and i wish that we had more debates over things like sausage and mustard yeah you and me both so as we approach uh thanksgiving carol uh, there's been also on our Cooking and Coping Facebook page a lot of talk about uh, equipment and cookware. And uh, our friend Marianne Hood was was asking for some advice from uh, her fellow Cooking and Coping compadres. And you monitored that conversation, I believe. Well, boy, did she get it. I think I think that she was just like wanting. Hey, you know, I want need. Uh, I'm I'm about to replace my Calphalon cookware. Anybody have any ideas? And they're just volumes of words written. People sat down. Even I did and wrote epistles 
Last time I checked, there were about a hundred people that that wrote about their favorite cookware. But um, I'm going to tell you my opinion on that, and and I, I think I have a pretty informed opinion because I had a gourmet store for 30 years, and you know, selling cookware, you learn quickly. You know, some some important things, and and you know, one is that everybody needs a nonstick skillet. But Just you don't, one or more yeah, well, size. you don't need nonstick cookware, but I think a an eight inch, ten inch, and twelve inch nonstick skillet, you know, really really makes the kitchen sing. And but, and the yeah, you know, the eight inch is great for omelets and eggs, and then the the twelve inch, if you can you know handle can afford all three, is great for doing pieces of fish. But you also need a 10-inch cast iron skillet. Right. Yeah, two different things. And, you know, in the sauce pot, you need a one-quart, two-quart, and three-quart, or variations thereof, one-and-a-half, two-and-a-half. Now, that will pretty much cover anything you need. And you need a, a, a sauté pan. Some people call I can't remember what, but, you know, it's about three inches high, um, a saute pan, an eight-quart stock pot for, you know, pasta and soups. Hopefully, you can, you know, match up a steamer insert or pasta insert with that. And then an, an eight-quart, like, casserole, like a Le Creuset or an enameled mm. heavy pan or cast oh. iron. So, so that's, that's my top of the list. Now, did, did you include some uh, opposite of nonstick? The I don't know what you call just the traditional. Yeah, just a, a, a traditional, I think, you know, a cast iron pan and then one regular, at least one regular skillet like a 10-inch. Yeah. The 10-inch is the workhorse of the kitchen. And if I'm, we didn't really get into this earlier, but wh- what about a set of knives? If, if you're talking to someone who's either you know, redoing their kitchen or setting up the kitchen for the first time. What would you say about a, a, a selection of knives to get started? And what do you think the ultimate knife collection would look like? Well, you know, first of all, it, it matters, you know, your price range matters. And luckily there are good knives in every price range. Uh, if you can't afford a really fine, like German made, knife like a Hinkle or uh, Wustoff, uh, you know, spend it on one good knife like an 8-inch chef's knife, a 6-inch, 8-inch, or 10-inch chef's knife, depending on your height. Like Marianne Hood is not going to want a 10-inch chef knife. She is a short person, and that is a big knife. But the 8-inch is the most common and the the six inch for people who can't handle can't handle the eight inch knife. Now, now can, Marianne, Marianne, <laughs> Marianne going to be calling me. Feel free to weigh in on uh, what size knife Carol thinks that you should have. Yeah, uh, but but whether it's a, a high quality German knife or a uh, you know stamped knife. Whatever, everybody needs an eight-inch chef's knife. You need a four-inch paring knife. You need a 10-inch carving knife. I mean, those are 
are the basics. And then after that, you know, whatever makes you happy. What size knife do you think Thomas Williams would need? I believe Thomas Williams probably has a 10-inch chef's knife. And what about ooey-gooey Java Chapman? Java has an 8-inch or 10. He has a, He does not have a 6-inch chef's knife. He's got the big boy knife. Yep, he does. He oh. does. That I carved my jack-o'-lantern with this weekend for Halloween. Oh, shame. First time. Uh, another, <laughs> another hot tip, Java. Don't put good knives in the dishwasher. Hand wash your, your knives. But your knife, your knife should... Your knife shouldn't be getting that dirty for the dishwasher. Like you should just be able to put it in the sink, wipe it with your towel, and there you go. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one other tip is never put a knife in the water in the in the sink. Like when you're washing dishes, put your knives up on the side, and then wash them individually. But uh, dishwasher detergent can pit knives it it can also discolor the handles you know it's just not that hard to do right. and you know that that change between the hot 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 of the drying and and the cold it's just it's just not good for them and speaking of hot 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 carol here's something i recently read and i'd like to hear your opinion on it when you take a skillet right off of the stove put the ingredients into a plate or platter or wherever you're going with them I read that it is absolutely incorrect to go straight into uh, water, like cold water. Going from extreme hot to extreme cold is just disastrous for your gear. Yes, it is disastrous for your gear. And you want to take care of your gear, so your gear will take care of you. Ah. So where are we on the Thanksgiving countdown, Thanksgiving tips brought to you by uh, Carol Puckett? and, and all of her wisdom accumulated throughout her lifetime. It, it's not exactly wisdom, but there it's just some practical things. And, and this time, 24 days out, you should have already finalized your guest list and kind of have a plan for what you're doing. It's a little bit different this, this year with COVID because a lot of us are still struggling with how we're going to do that. Um, so finalize your list, start planning your menu. But really the big tip of the week is to go ahead and check your gear out. You know, when you plan your menu and know what you're going to do, you want to know now. You do not want to know on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And as someone who, who owned a gourmet store for 30 years, you would not believe the wild-eyed people that come in <laughs> at 3 o'clock. On Wednesday afternoon, on Wednesday, Help! their their food processor processor bowl is broken because they hadn't used it in a year. Uh, they don't have a meat thermometer, so you know the meat thermometer is important. Your uh, measuring utensils are really important. Uh, the turkey baster, the ball baster, is important. Uh, kitchen twine. You know, kitchen twine that you tie the turkey legs together with needs to be an unbleached cotton. Do not go get rope out of your garage and do this. Because it could have like plastic in it. Yeah, do not use duct tape. Do not use duct tape. 
Uh, check your oven. Get an oven thermometer now if you have any question about your oven. Because when you call the appliance repair on Wednesday afternoon, they are not going to be able to, to repair your oven. So that's important to do now. Um, it just uh, I wrote down a few tools that I've, I've kind of into now. You know, after having a store with these tools, these are some things I just never had before. And now I wonder why. And one is a ricer. Do you have have a ricer? If Mel? I do, I'm not familiar with it. Well, it, it, it it's actually a potato ricer. It it's like two handles. You put the potatoes in it, and then you you smush them. <laughs> smush. Well, you smush them down, and it, so your mashed potatoes. You don't have lumpy mashed potatoes. It's an uh, old-fashioned tool, but it it is wonderful. Hmm. Uh, I think I have one of those. I didn't know the name of it. Yeah. Well, start using it. I. I'm I'm really into that, really into mashed potatoes right now. But because I've started baking pies uh, during the current unpleasantness with COVID, there are a couple of pie things that make make your baking so much better. And one is a set of pie weights. For those pies, it's called blind baking when you bake the crust first. Right. You can use rice or beans, but it is worth the investment, which is only between six and ten dollars, to get ceramic pie weights, or there's one a metal pie weights with the chain on it, but it holds your pie crust down, and it keeps it from shrinking or puffing up. Wow, manipulating the crust. Yes, and also pie crust shields, which are little curved things that you can put on the outside uh, the outside to keep the edges from burning I mean I sold those for years and never had any I just kind of scrunch up aluminum foil right and do it but but this is it's a real winner it's a real help and I highly recommend them well those are some great tips Carol and thanks a lot uh, as we make our way toward Thanksgiving uh, we want to remind you that tomorrow is election day get out and vote uh, Exercise your democracy. Be an American. Deep South Dining is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Think Radio. We are funded by generous contributions from listeners just like you. Our show is produced by Java Uigui Chapman. And for my co-host, Carol Puckett, and myself, we would like to ask you to stay tuned now for Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey and Southern Remedy followed at 11. Join us every Monday at 9 o'clock in the morning for Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio.